morning. Don't stop. Yeah, way to go. I didn't know if you guys were going to track with me on that. Okay. Well done. Well done. Here, let me try another one. All right, here we go. Because, baby, there ain't no mountain. Yeah. Well, I got to rein you guys in. That's great. Okay, okay. Good job. You're awake. You're listening. You're tracking with me. All right, one more. This will be a fun one. Whoa, we're halfway there. Yeah, good job, guys. Way to go. Way to go. Well done. Isn't that remarkable? No preparation. No prior communication, right? I didn't put in the bulletin last week that, you know, Joseph's going to start by singing karaoke this week coming up here. But you guys were able to jump right in with that. Those songs are so familiar. They're so ingrained into our social psyche that we're, we're able with, I mean, you're not sweating bullets out there. I don't see gears turning. Almost all of you to a person were able to jump right into those lyrics without a second thought. Isn't that remarkable? That some music is just that familiar to us. Here, I want to try a different one. This is, it's, it's a little different, but I, I think you guys will be able to do something very similar. So here we go. All right, ready? Although I walk through the valley, death, I will fear no evil. Wow. That's remarkable, isn't it? Those are familiar words. Some of us are here, and we know exactly where those words come from. Some of us are here, and we're maybe sort of, is that in the Bible somewhere? I know I've heard that. I know I saw that in Grandma's quilt growing up. And where are those words from? Some of us are like, I, I don't have a clue, but somehow, instinctively, those words are so familiar that I'm aware enough of them that I could probably stumble my way through it or fill in those gaps. Now, those words are from Psalm 23. That's going to be a psalm that we're looking at together this morning. One of, if not the most familiar passages of Scripture worldwide, throughout human history even. I mean, through, throughout the last 3,000 years of Scripture, right? You would say uh, that it's remarkable that a Hebrew king, a guy named David, almost 3,000 years ago on a different continent, in a different language, penned these words. But there's something about these words that are so familiar to us that it doesn't really matter what we do or who we are. We're familiar with them. We've heard these before. Right? We have all sorts of different types of people here this morning. We have uh, different, uh, uh, different professions. We have white-collar folks, blue-collar folks, no-collar folks, Right? We've got different generations represented here, uh, the greatest generation and boomers and Xers, millennials and whatever's nexters, right? Yeah, we've got those. We have all these, but almost to a person, adults, children, teenagers, uh, retirees, we're able to fill in the gaps with these words. We're familiar with the words of Psalm 23. Now, familiarity is a beautiful thing. That's a really good, uh, wonderful thing. It's one of the best things about music, Right? It brings people together, creates this common bond, this common language that we can connect with people. I mean, there are people all over the world, people uh, on different continents speaking different languages, who are familiar with Psalm 23, who share that common bond. That's a wonderful thing. But also familiar, familiarity has a downside, right? Familiarity can, can sometimes lead to forgetfulness, right? If we hear something so much, if we experience something so much, uh, it kind of becomes white noise to us, Right? kind of fades in the background. We forget what made it so significant in the first place. Make this practical, kind of outside of the musical sphere. Uh, Many of us, I'm sure, can recall, I hope can recall the first time we said those words, I love you, to a significant other. I remember the emotions wrapped up in that. Your palms are sweating. Everything's sweating. You're super nervous. You're you're anxious. You're excited. Are they going to respond? Are they going to say it back? So significant. Those three little words, I love you, such a significant moment. But over time, 
the more we say those words, we kind of forget that significance, don't we? Hey, babe, could you pick up some uh, paper towels on the way home? Thanks, I love you. It doesn't have the same effect anymore. <laughs> We've forgotten what made those words so significant. So we're going we're gonna to look at Psalm 23 together this morning. Uh, and Psalm 23 is remarkable, and I think it creates that familiarity because it describes something that every single person here can relate with. It describes life. Uh, 100 out of 100 people polled in our Deer Creek Church said they were alive, so that's good. Um, we can relate to life. And here's this author 3,000 years ago talking about navigating life, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, everything in between, right? Mountaintops and valleys. But the way he describes it creates this connection, this familiar bond. But my prayer for us this morning, my hope, my desire, is that we would look at this passage with fresh eyes. I, I know you're going to be familiar with it. I know you've heard it before, you've read it before, you've sang it before, you've prayed it before. Um, my hope, though, is that we look at this with fresh eyes. So I'm actually going to pray right now. I'm going to pray for us as before, right before we turn to Psalm 23 and pray that God would give us fresh eyes. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, the gift of this morning. Lord, the gift of this fellowship, this time together, men, women, children here, to worship you, to know a little bit more about who you are, God, and who you have made us to be. Lord, as we open your word, I pray, God, that you would stir something within us. You would give us fresh eyes and a fresh mind. Lord, that we wouldn't just be familiar with your word, but we would remember it. We would recall it, we would experience it, we would know it, and then by doing so, we would know who you are, God. That's my prayer this morning. That's our prayer this morning. Set aside distractions, anxieties, fears. Help us to focus on you. Set aside even familiarity, Lord, that we may see something new and know a little bit something more about who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have the uh, passage behind on the slides behind me, uh, but you can, you can follow along. Psalms is right there in the middle of your Bibles. If you have a Bible, you can turn there right now. And uh, it's just right in the smack dab middle of your Bible. And uh, Psalm 23. And that's, it's not a very long psalm. Uh, we're going to go through it just a little bit at a time, a couple verses at a time. And so you can follow along here. This is God's word. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Just stop right there. Okay, blah, blah, blah. God, you take care of me. All right, I've heard this before. The Lord's my shepherd. Okay, what's next? Oh, let's slow down. That's such a simple statement, isn't it? Right, if you can remember that, you already have memorized an entire verse of the Bible. Congratulations. Right, that's not very long. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And we've heard those words before. We've read them. We've prayed them. And we've sang them. But there's something so significant that David is writing about his life experience right here. As he's about to describe Psalm 23, as he's going to walk us through his life and the ups and downs of his life, this is where he chooses to start. This is remarkable because David, right out of the gate, says, I'm not alone, right? It's, it, it's not just my life. There's actually someone here with me. There's another character. In fact, I don't want to, here at the start of my journey, put the spotlight on myself. I want to put the spotlight on the Lord. I want to feature who God is and who he is to me. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, we have this kind of idyllic view of what shepherds are. You know, we imagine someone kind of sleeping under an apple tree, sheep uh, idly grazing around. Um, being a shepherd was a little bit more like being a youth pastor, right, than, than actually this, like, you're not dozing off taking naps because if you do, the sheep are gone, right? And David knew a little something about this because he had been a shepherd uh, before he became king. He was intimately familiar with what it meant to be a shepherd. It wasn't a glorious position. Long hours, very difficult uh, co-workers who weren't really cooperative with you, right? 
And so it required constant diligence, constant protection, constant provision to be a shepherd. David knew a little something about this. Now, if David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, what does that make David? Yeah, you guys are still tracking. Good job. He is a sheep. Oh, that's cute. David's saying he's a sheep. If you've ever been around sheep, uh, sheep are not super, I mean, they're maybe from a distance they're cute, but up close and personal when you're taking care of them, uh, they're pretty frustrating, pretty stinky, pretty high maintenance, kind of dumb, right? They kind of get into all sorts of messes. They're not the easiest of animals to take care of, right? Now, uh, my wife and I go to the Littleton Museum over uh, just past Broadway. Uh, if you've ever been over there, it's you know, kind of a museum dedicated to the history of Littleton. There's a farm out behind Littleton. All sorts of different animals, right? We'll take, we have a little one-year-old daughter, so we'll go over there and we'll say, oh, look, you know, it's a cow. She'll go, oh, and you know, there's a chicken, oh. And, yeah, you're, you're getting it. Yeah. Everything, everything's an oh to her. But she loves the sheep, but she goes, oh, oh, oh. You know, she gets really excited when she sees the sheep. They're big and fluffy and cute, and there's little baby sheep wandering around over there. Now, if you've been over to the farm, there's actually this uh, old-timey wagon that's kind of right in the middle of the sheep pen. I uh, think like Oregon Trail wagon, big covered wagon, has the spokes and the wheels and everything. And while we were over there a few weeks back, we, we saw something uh, pretty funny. We saw a little baby sheep, a little lamb kind of playing and jumping around, and it jumped uh, through the spokes, and it kind of wedged itself through and jumped through the spokes to get to some grass on the other side, the spokes of this wagon wheel. Jumps through and starts munching over there. So this big papa ram, right, this rotund fellow, sees this baby lamb do this and thinks, that looks like a great idea for me. And so this big ram proceeds to put his head in the middle of this wagon wheel spokes and, and starts to wedge itself right into the middle of this. And we're laughing, we're like, oh, that silly sheep getting himself into trouble. As he got farther in there, he was completely surrounded by this wagon wheel. He was completely 100% stuck. And he started to panic, making noises I didn't know sheep could make. And he's, he's thrashing around. And all of a sudden, this amusement of ours turns to alarm. We're like, is there a sheep emergency hotline? Like, what do we do here? What's protocol for us in this situation? And so we found a, a worker there at the museum. And they kind of wrote it. I'm like, oh, sheep stuck again. Uh, I'll have Frank get him out. Yeah, thanks for letting us know. Yeah, this happens all the time. We need to get rid of that wagon. And we were, we were fascinated by it. Like, this is a regular occurrence. They're like, yeah, sheep get into all sorts of trouble all the time. And so we're watching this. We're watching them try and wedge this sheep out. <laughs> it's, it's hysterical. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, I'm glad I'm not like a sheep. Right? I'm glad I don't, yeah. I'm glad I'm not that dumb. I'm glad I don't constantly get myself in the situations that I just can't, I don't know how to get out of. Boy, I'm glad I'm, oh, oh, wait. <laughs> I can sort of relate to that. As I truly, honestly reflect on my life, like the trajectory of my life, how I lived in the past, how I live in the future. I, if I'm honest with myself for more than two seconds, I can recognize that I have gotten myself in some pretty um, tight situations, some very difficult situations. That's really no one else's fault that I'm there except me. And that in those situations, I needed help. I needed a shepherd. I needed a caretaker. I need someone to come in and provide for me and protect me. If I'm truly honest with myself, that's what I know. Myself. I wonder, is that true for you? Is that true for you? Can you reflect on a time or a season of life, a, a series of events where you put yourself in a situation, you wedged yourself into something and you're like looking around, I don't know how I got here and I have no clue how I'm getting out of this. See, David is honest. Right here at the start of his life, he says, the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. He will take care of me. He will provide for me. The Lord will protect me. That's what shepherds do. 
And I don't, I don't think David is saying this in like some really self-deprecating way of, ah, I'm just so dumb and I'm so high maintenance and woe is me. Because I think some of us are tempted to go there. I don't think that's what David's doing. I think he's being genuinely honest about who he is in his relationship with God. And that is he is dependent. He needs a shepherd. He needs someone to provide for him and protect him. There's no shame in that. In fact, there's a tremendous amount of freedom in that to put his trust in a good shepherd to take care of him. And I wonder for some of us here today, is that maybe even just where we need to start as we're reading through this psalm? Let's not brush right past this, okay, Lord is my shepherd. Do we believe that? Do we trust in that? Do I trust that the Lord will provide for me and protect me even and especially when I wedge myself into terrible situations? And if he is my shepherd, then he's gonna be the one that's gonna guide me, right? Sheep don't lead the flock, the shepherd leads the flock. The shepherd sets the tone, the shepherd sets the pace. The shepherd tells the sheep where to go. And so David, right out of the gate, says, you are leading the way. You will provide for me. You will protect me. I lack nothing because you are in charge, not me. That's tough. That's tough for us as Americans. We want to be autonomous. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And yet David presents a contrary view. And we see where the good shepherd leads him. You can look at verses 2 and 3. God's word says this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. This is what the good shepherd does. Isn't that a pretty picture? Isn't that idyllic? It's beautiful. Whenever I read this, I always think of, uh, I don't know if there's any Lord of the Rings fans here, anyone who's read the book, seen the movies. I always think of the Shire, right? This is like beautiful, idyllic, a wonderful place. There's no conflict in the Shire. It's a place of rest, a place of sustenance, a place where people are taken care of. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a place where our, our heroes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy call home. It's a peaceful, wonderful, restful place. And it's so fascinating to me, though, that doesn't that sound nice? That sounds great. But read what David says. The shepherd leads him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. It's almost as if David's kind of recognizing, yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want my first stop on my life journey to be a place of rest. I want to get stuff done. I want to be productive. I want to go and get right into the thick of things. But it's fascinating that the first place the good shepherd leads David, the first stop on his life journey is a rest stop. It's a place to be restored. It's quiet waters. His soul is refreshed. I, I know it's vacation season. Uh, my wife and I have reflected, my wife Sheila and I have reflected that we just vacation really poorly. And I don't know if any of you can relate to this. That the fact that we almost dread vacation coming up a little bit because the weeks leading up to vacation are so stressful. We amp ourselves up. We got to get the tickets. We got to get packed. We got to, where's your suitcase? I don't know where your suitcase is. Do you know where mine is? Let's get everything together. And then we rush to the airport and overlay. Security line is super long. How, how, where are we going to leave the car? And it's so stressful. In fact, vacation is so stressful. It often takes us a few days to calm down and to rest and to quiet ourselves once we actually get to wherever we're going. I don't know if you can relate to that, but it's difficult for us to rest sometimes. And sometimes I think God actually has to make us rest. He has to lead us to a quiet place, to a restful place. I love to be productive. I love to put myself out there and to, to get things done. But I wonder how contrary that view is to what we see here. See, all throughout scripture, God has a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous value on rest. 
We see it right out of the gate. On the sixth day, God created man and woman. On the seventh day, they rested. Now, it's fascinating. God didn't need to take a holy nap, right? He wasn't, ooh, I'm tuckered out from all this. No, but God is doing something. The first day of existence, the first time of existence where there is God and man and woman, the first thing they do all together is rest. Isn't that fascinating? How, how much do we exhaust ourselves to collapse into rest? The God of the Bible, I think, presents a view of rest that is contrary to every other deity, every other philosophy, every other belief system on the planet that says you need to work so hard that you deserve to rest. If you work hard enough, then you will deserve it. The God of the Bible says differently. He says, no, no, no. He says, I love you so much that I will work to make you rest, to make you lie down in green pastures. That's what a good shepherd does. He leads us to a place of rest. We see this all throughout the life of Jesus as well. We see him consistently, rhythmically, engaging in patterns of rest, inviting his disciples to participate in rest at the height of his ministry, at the height of his productivity and ministry success. We see him do something shocking. We see him withdraw to a place of rest. Remarkable. The God of the Bible loves rest. And my question for us this morning is, do we actually rest in who God is. Now, important distinction. I think for some of us, we need to recognize that there is a difference between killing time and resting. Right? The difference between killing time and resting. There's a massive difference between those two things. I am the king of killing time. I am the king of spending a Saturday playing on my phone or binge watching TV. I am the, so good at that. I'm the champ of killing time. Man, I'm a chump when it comes to rest. I'm a chump when it comes to actually being restored in my relationship with God, to actually uh, sitting by green pastures and quiet waters and doing things that restore my soul. Are you killing time on the weekends or are you resting? Do you have rhythms in place in your life where you actually are dedicating yourself to holistic restoration and rest, where you engage in recreation? Literally, if you think about that word, recreation, where you are recreated through your activities. How did you feel the last time you sat down on your phone and looked at Facebook for a couple hours? Probably not that, I'm gonna wager, probably not that great. You might be level 257 of Candy Crush, but how are you feeling by the time you're done? In fact, you probably wanna smash your phone in. That game's really frustrating. You may watch a ton and ton of TV and say, I just need to switch off, I need to veg out. How did you really feel the last time you binge watched four hours of television? Are you killing time or are you resting? Now, this is a different thing for every single one of us. There are different people rest and are restored in, a little bit, uh, in different ways. On vacation, my wife will tell you, I do, I do like to take a holy nap. I want to shut down. I want to read. I don't want to plan. I want to I kick back. My wife wants to go on an adventure, right? She wants to go and see things and be with people constantly, and it kind of wears me out, and I say, you have fun. I'm going to take a nap. You, you do that. So what restores you? It's different for every single one of us. I wonder... What would it look like for us to go to someone who knows us extremely well, maybe spouse, a best friend, sibling, and just to ask them a question. Hey, when are the times you see me the most rested, the, the most refreshed? What, what was I doing? Uh, what had I done previously to that? When was I the most rested? And when was I the least rested? When, would I, when was I super cranky and frustrated and critical? That, that answer might surprise you. It might humble you as well. 
But the good news is that the shepherd, that David, as he's engaging on his life journey, doesn't just throw him right into work and productivity. He invites him into rest. The first stop on his journey is a rest stop. And it prepares him to do what it says here at the end of verse 3. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. That God actually wants what's best for us because when, uh, when we are satisfied in him, when we are rested in him, that makes God look glorious. He deepens our relationship. He prepares us for wherever he will lead us. And sometimes he leads us to unexpected places, right? We see what happens next. The next place that uh, David is led. Even though I walk through the valley of what? Ah, there it is. We knew it was coming, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we say, hold up, hold up. I didn't sign up for this, right? I don't want to go to the valley of the shadow of death. No one wants to take a pit stop in the valley of shadow of death. That amusement park will not last. It will not make it. (laughs) We've left the Shire. We've left this cool and calm and relaxing place. Where are we at instead, nerds? Mordor. Yeah, if you know Lord of the Rings, we're in this dark and sinister land. There's volcanoes and glowing eyes and lightning and bad guys. I don't want to go there. Do you want a vacation there? Do you want to go and spend any part of your life there? Of course not. And so you start to question, what in the world is this good shepherd up to? Good shepherds don't send their sheep to places like this. And if you've ever thought that, If you've ever felt that in your life, you say good shepherds don't send their sheep into situations like this, into relationships like this, into jobs like this, illnesses like this. You're exactly right. They do not send their sheep into those situations and those places. They lead them. They walk with them. They participate and experience it together. That's what good shepherds do. When it is the necessary thing to do, A good shepherd is right there with his sheep, even in the worst of situations, even in the worst of places. So that we can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why should I not be afraid in a situation like that, in an illness like that, in a relationship like that, in a job like that? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The shepherd is with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And there's something so subtle that happens here, something so, uh, so uh, just kind of on the margins. We don't notice it right away, and we're so familiar with these words, right? These are so common to us, we can brush right past it, but it's so important for us. Because notice how David refers to his shepherd now that he is in the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they will comfort me. All of a sudden, the shepherd is not this abstract he, third person. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. He will do this. He will do that. You are there. It's intimacy. It's relationship. It's trust. It's a subtle thing. But we see even the words he uses in his deepest, darkest, most frustrating of moments. He refers to God as you. He knows him as you. You are there with me. And not only is God there with him. He's loaded for bear. He is well-equipped. The good shepherd is well-equipped to handle this situation. Says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Now, a shepherd had a couple of tools, uh, tools of the trade that helped him accomplish things. He had the rod to help fight off uh, attackers, bandits, wolves, anyone who threatened his flock. He would use that to defend his sheep. He was prepared to do that, even in the most pressing, most dire circumstances. In fact, uh, you could tell a good shepherd by a bad shepherd because when uh, trouble would attack a flock and you had a bad shepherd or maybe a contract shepherd, you know, an understudy shepherd, they would flee. Ah, it's not worth it. It's not worth me putting myself out there. But this shepherd has his rod and he's ready and he's ready to defend his sheep no matter what it costs him. He's ready to protect his flock. But he also has his staff because he knows that sheep get scared. And if you've seen the, the, the kind of quintessential shepherd's crook, the shepherd's staff, it has that hook on the end. And sheep have a tendency to panic and they have a tendency to turn back and they have a tendency to run and they have a tendency to flee and tendency to feel overwhelmed and angry and scared. And so the shepherd would use this crook to gently, but very intentionally, keep his flock together, to keep them near him, even in the darkest, most difficult of circumstances because the shepherd knew that was what was best for them. And so as they're trying to flee, as they're trying to panic and run, he would hold them close and draw them near. The shepherd is well-equipped to handle this situation. There's good news here. There is good news here that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we aren't alone. We will face seasons like this, right? It doesn't matter what you believe here this morning. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or you're not, or you're, some, you're, you're not even sure what you believe. You will face a valley of the shadow of death. Either you have or you will. I'm not making threats, it's just, it's just reality. This will happen. Who is with you in the valley of the shadow of death? I would invite you to consider the fact that the good shepherd, God Almighty, who loves you, who sacrificed for you, is right there with you, protecting you, sacrificing for you, but providing for you as well and holding you near even in those darkest of moments. And as we look back on those, we may not know exactly why we were led there, but boy, we remember who was with us, don't we? We remember that God was with us and we walk out to the other side and it does come to an end. And we see where the good shepherd leads David on the other side of this valley of the shadow of death. Verse five, you prepare a table before me. Even in the presence of my enemies, God, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's still this intimate language. It's almost like he's more confident, more comfortable because he knows that God was with him in this difficult situation and circumstances. And what we see in verse five is a picture of celebration, but it's oddly timed celebration, right? You prepare a table for me. There's a feast taking place in the presence of my enemies. Even on the other side of the valley of shadow, even though I've experienced so much heartache and hardship and difficulty and pain, there's something worthy of celebrating because my shepherd got me through it. And he's there with me and he anoints my head with oil. That's a biblical sign of blessing. And he says, my cup overflows. I have a bountiful life because my God is with me. My shepherd has taken care of me. He has protected me and provided for me. Now, some of us, we know, we know through our experience, we know how to be in the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, unfortunately, we, we maybe know that a little too well, some of us. Do we know how to actually celebrate and express gratitude on the other side of that valley? I feel like gratitude is a lost art in our society, in our culture. Uh, when I was in college, I was a senior, and I, uh, I mentored this group uh, of three freshman girls my, my senior year. And it sounds a little weird, but it worked out great. They were amazing gals, hearts for the Lord. One girl in particular, her name was Sally, just outstanding leader. 
natural leader. She was, she was super intelligent. She was wicked smart. She was brilliant, natural leader, uh, very strong in her faith. Sally was so critical of herself, though, and so critical of the situations around her. We, kinda, we started calling her Saturnine Sally. You can look it up. It's a word. It's kind of like a Debbie Downer play on words. If you remember the old SNL skit, like, something great says a birthday party. Oh, but here's something terrible that happened. Womp, womp. And she, she would be so successful, successful in ministry and so successful in her school and so successful in all of these ways, but she could always find something to complain about, something to criticize. Most of all in herself, she could have a hundred strengths, but she would focus on that one weakness. She could have succeeded dozens of times academically, relationally, ministerially, but she'd focus on that one time she felt like she wasn't good enough. Can you relate to that? What would it look like for us to be a people marked by gratitude? Even in the presence of our enemies, right? Even in the presence of difficult situations, what would it look like for us to be marked with gratitude towards our good shepherd? Now, what this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean put on a show. It doesn't mean you need to amp yourself up, fake it till you feel it. We've talked about this before. <clears throat> but it would mean a couple of things. It would mean that we are a people marked by honesty. We are a church defined by honesty, right? In the presence of my enemies, David's not making light of it. Through the valley of the shadow of death, he's not making light of that. He's not brushing past that. That is real. In the presence of my enemies, he's honest about his situation. But yet in the middle of that, his behavior is marked by celebration and gratitude. And that's the tension that we feel as followers of Jesus. The good news of the gospel and the bad news of the broken world we live in. So how do we navigate that? I think we walk right between those uh, two. I think there are churches that want to focus just on the terrible things happening. The world's falling apart. It's going to hell in a handbasket. You've heard that phrase before. The world is terrible and gloom and doom. And you have other churches, you have other communities that say, it's all fine, right? We're okay. Hey, just fine. Just be the best you now and put on a big smile. And, and you know, everyone walk out of here smiling. But in the, on the inside, we are falling apart and decaying and dying. Neither of those is correct. Psalm 23 talks about the right way the right path. What if we were a church not defined by how critical we were or by how fake we are, but by how honest we are about our situations and how grateful we are in the midst of those? There's a great couple in this church. Many of you know them, Molly and Ken Bishar. They have this uh, gratefulness board up in their home. Uh, we went over there for uh, a dinner a while back, and I noticed this and asked uh, Ken and Molly about this. And his, every morning, they just try to put three things they're grateful for. Three things they're grateful for, kind of write it out in chalk on there, and they celebrate that. And I think that's just a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful way to make gratitude a regular rhythm in their lives. I wonder, what could a regular rhythm of gratitude, of celebration, in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of pain and trials of life, in the dark valleys, what does gratitude and celebration look like? Because as we celebrate, we are reminded of the good news of the gospel. And this is where Psalm 23 ends. It ends with fantastic news. And David writes this, Surely your goodness, God, your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is good news. That is good news because what he is saying is that God's love and his goodness are the ones chasing him down. That word follow right there in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word radaf. And it's this aggressive, this fierce pursuit, right? God does not casually, idly stroll after us. He is aggressively, fiercely pursuing us with his goodness and his love. And some of us are here today because of that very reason. Maybe you're sitting here 
And you've said to yourself a dozen times, I, I'm done with this. I'm done with church. I'm done with these fake people. I'm done with, with God. I'm done with, I'm done with these things, but I, there's something pursuing you. There's something holding on to you. And that's why you're here now. That's God's goodness. That's his love. That's his redoff. That's his fierce, aggressive pursuit of you. That says, I will not let go of you, even though you want to let go of me. I am the good shepherd. And you know what the good shepherd does? He lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus, with his disciples, who he knew would stray, who he knew would betray him, he knew would do all of these things. He said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherds lay down their life for his sheep. And he did. And that's the reminder we have of the cross. That's the promise and the covenant that was made through him. And we know the new covenant in his blood in, uh, welcomes us into God's home. He fiercely, sacrificially, aggressively pursues us in his love. So aggressively, he laid down his life. Because that's what good shepherds do. And these words, they're, they're so familiar. But they're so significant. And there's an invitation there's an invitation to dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of his fierce love. Because he loves us so much to sacrifice for us. And maybe you need that reminder this morning. As you walk out of here, as you hear these familiar words, as you pray through this again, maybe with fresh eyes, consider the fact that God is fiercely, aggressively, passionately pursuing you. It's not too late. It's never too late. He does not give up on us even though we want to stray, even though we get ourselves into terrible situations, even though we become so familiar with him and his words that it starts to lose significance for us at times, he wants to help us remember because that's what good shepherds do. Let me pray for us. We'll close. Father, thank you that you are the good shepherd. Thank you that you love us so much that you sacrifice for us in the darkest, most painful, most terrible of circumstances where the God of the universe was subjected to humiliation and torture and death. You loved us even then. You loved us in the worst, darkest, most painful of situations. You are our good shepherd. And Lord, we're sheep. I confess I'm a smelly, high-maintenance, kind of dumb sheep, Lord. And I get myself into trouble all the time, and I need you. I need you every hour, God, I need you. Lord, I believe that is true for every single one of us here today. And I pray for this congregation, God. I pray that we would sing and respond and worship you and be reminded of the fact that you are our good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, who holds us near, even and especially when we want to stray. Thank you, Lord, for that good news. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our King, our Shepherd. Amen.